Revelation chapter 1. Now, as we saw last week, and if you weren't here, that's okay. We did, our, we did an introduction. We're going to begin right back with verse 1 in just a moment. But we saw last week that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that comes with a blessing. A guaranteed blessing to anyone who reads it. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says again, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And I, I said last week, what I'm hoping for for each of you is the barefoot blessing. You recall that, the barefoot blessing. That is, that by the time we're done with Revelation, even before that, that this study will bless your socks off. Well, last week was my birthday, on Wednesday, turned 41. And on that great and glorious day, I received a, an e-card from Sharon. And I don't know how you found it, but it was perfect. It was just perfect. I opened it up, it was from Dayspring. You know, I don't know if you've gotten those Dayspring cards, but it came in my email, so I clicked on it, opened it up, and it said open card here. Click, and sitting under this tree was this little cartoon of a sheep. And the sheep had socks on its feet and was knitting a little sock. Just sitting there knitting, knitting, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And then all of a sudden you see a breeze come up and the sheep is blown right off the hillside, flips upside down in the air, lands in the ground, and the socks are blown completely off. And then it comes floating down there and the caption on the card was, bless your woolly socks off. <laughs> and that was great. It was perfect. But I'll tell you something else. There was more to it than that for me. For the scripture passage, the verse that was attached to that day spring card, I'll read it to you, was Isaiah 61, verse 7. Now you need to understand before I open this up, I just had a conversation with some people who are close to me who buy into or, or who believe in replacement theology. We've talked a little bit about replacement theology. That's simply saying that the church is the new Israel. That the church is New Jerusalem. That the Israelites had their chance. They blew it. They're out of the picture. And the church now receives all the blessings that once were promised to Israel. The blessings and not the curses. <laughs> Just the blessings. And that's all for the church. And gang, it is unbiblical. It is an unbiblical position. I hung up the phone. And right before I got this card, I was just thinking about this. And going... How can I convince when, when the word itself is not convincing someone? How do you convince someone? And I'm thinking about this and I'm frustrated by it. And the card came and I laughed about the woolly socks being blown off. And then I read the verse. God answered immediately what I needed to hear. Isaiah 61 verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs, speaking of Israel. Israel. God, my friends, is accountable to His promises. You will see as we go through Revelation, we need to understand that God will keep every one of His promises to Israel. Why do we have to understand that? Because if He doesn't keep His promises to Israel, why should He keep them to us? Why would I think for a moment that God would keep what He's promised me if He doesn't keep all of His promises? Everything He's ever said He would do, He has done or will do. And it's critical to our faith to know that. To not have to guess, is God going to follow through? Will Jesus come back? Is there a place reserved for me? Am I really saved? But to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, God keeps His promises. And so you can count on His promises and you can count on being blessed. 
You can count on being blessed in the study of this book. I, I had uh, another experience this last week. Cheryl was talking with someone about the Revelation study, and the immediate reaction was, oh, that book scares me. Okay, the book scares anybody who doesn't read it. Revelation is a very frightening thing if you haven't opened it up and cracked it. Looked at the pages, read it for yourself, but to study it, to read it, it, it's the most wonderful book, in my mind, in the scriptures. It is, as we said again last week, the culmination of all things. It all comes together in this book. If you're scared by it, you just haven't read it literally. If you read it and understand it in its literal, most simple sense, well, it's not scary. And the best way to keep it simple is to follow the divine outline. Does anyone remember where the divine outline is found? Chapter 1, verse 19. Look at verse 19. Jesus tells John, Therefore write the things, number one, which you have seen. And number two, the things which are. And number three, the things which will take place after these things. After these things. Three parts to this outline. Very simple. The things that you have seen. What was that? Anyone remember? What were the things that you had seen? Remember? Huh? What had John seen at this point? Jesus glorified. Jesus in his glorified state. That's chapter 1. John had seen that prior to Jesus saying, write what you've seen. John had just seen the glorified, resurrected Jesus in all of his glory. We're going to see some of Jesus in that glory tonight. Amazing stuff. Chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ. First part of the outline. The things which you have seen. John, he wrote about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus also said, write the things which are. The things which are. What, what's that? Anyone know what, what are the things which are? The people of Jesus Christ. The church. The church age. You can read about that in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to get into it. It's fascinating. Seven letters to seven churches. But it's an indication of the entire church age over the last 2,000 years. You will see that clearly. And the things, John writes, which will take place after these things. What, what's that? After these things. After what things? After what things? After the church. What about after the church? After the church is over, gone. After we fly, as we talked about this morning. Once the church is history, out of here. That's chapters 4 through 22. It's everything that will happen. Everything that is future. Everything that is coming. Chapters 4 through 22. So one more time, you need to get this down. Once you get this divine outline down, the book becomes much easier to understand. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the people of Jesus Christ. And write the things which will take place after these things. Chapter 4 through 22, that is the prophetic plan of Jesus Christ. Now, tonight we start rolling in the Revelation. And depending on your Bible translation, you may see different headings above it. Some Bibles will say the Revelation of John. Or the revelation of St. John, and that would be incorrect. It is not the revelation of John. John is not the one being revealed here. The Bible is very clear about who this revelation is about. Look at verse 1, chapter 1. Here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits? Yeah, seven. We'll get there. The seven spirits before the throne, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Five ways, five ways tonight that the revelation was given. As we look at these verses really closely, and you're going to see, we're going to pick it apart. By the way, let me, let me um, clarify something. There were, there were some questions going around about how long we're going to be in this study, how, how many weeks is Rick going to do. And, and I talked about doing a shorter version over about 12 weeks, and there's just no way that's going to happen. So hunker down, we may be here a while. <laughs> Verse 1 gives us who the revelation was given to. The revelation of Jesus Christ, listen to this, was given to Jesus Christ. First, the first person or way in which the revelation was given, the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. So the revelation of Christ was given first to Christ. Watch this, follow this. Matthew 24 verse 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus speaking says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus says, the Father alone knows when the Son is going to return. The Father alone, God alone knows when I'm going to come back. And you may ask the question, well, I thought Jesus was God in the flesh, so how come he doesn't know? And it is an intriguing question. Does Jesus know everything? Does he know everything? Now we would be prone to say yes, and yet he says the Son doesn't know what the day or the hour is. Apparently, at least at the time he taught his disciples about the time of the end, he did not know everything, which is a fascinating thing to consider about Jesus. And what he did when he came in the flesh. Luke chapter 2 verse 40 tells us, speaking of Jesus, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And verse 52 of Luke chapter 2 says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What are you saying, Rick? I'm simply saying this, that Jesus, when he became human, became really human. He left it all. He became a man. Are you saying that he wasn't God? No, he was still God. But he became completely human. He left behind so much. Philippians 2 verse 7 says he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Oh, he was still God in the flesh, but he abdicated his authority. He even, in the 33 years that he walked on the face of the earth, he even to a degree abdicated uh, some knowledge. 
At least we know that he didn't know during that time when he was going to come back. Not that he couldn't have known, but he, he chose as he walked in the flesh as a man only to know what the Father told him. Only to know what God would reveal to him in that time. Again, Philippians 2.7 saying he emptied himself. The Greek word for emptied in that verse is kanuo. Kanuo, which literally means to neutralize. He neutralized his knowledge. He set aside his grandeur, his glory. Still being God and being man, 100% both, but choosing, choosing to set aside for the purpose of walking on earth fully human. And so he said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so even the revelation was given to Jesus. Now when was it given to Jesus? When was this plan revealed to Jesus? I would think apparently after he ascended to heaven. Because here he knows. He's the one giving the revelation on, passing it along to John, but he was given the revelation by God himself, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants what must soon take place. Father told son, son told John, John memoed the church, and now we're all in on it. Okay? So the second thing is that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation was given to the son, it was also given to his slaves. It was given to his slaves. Now, I, I added this in. This is, uh, some of you know, I'm going off of notes that I'm kind of revising as I go. Notes from studying through this and teaching it three years ago. I added this because it intrigued me. It says to show his bondservants. That word bondservants is the Greek word doulos, and literally it means slaves. To show his slaves. And I hope you understand and accept this, that it's the highest honor and distinction a child of God can have. To be a slave of the Father, a slave unto the Lord. We're all slaves of something, aren't we? I mean, it's pretty much whatever we're engaged in or involved in. We're slaves to something. You might be a slave to the almighty dollar. You might be a slave to your house, a slave of fashion. Hopefully, Aaron, you're not a slave of fashion. That's a personal joke. Because I'm not supposed to share that Aaron was a male cheerleader, but that's another thing for... Did I, did I say that out loud? I'm so sorry. Hey, yeah, I'm not the one who's out there, you know. I admire a man who is that secure in his madness. Anyway, moving on. Paul breaks it down. Gage... Paul breaks it down into one of two types of slavery. We are all going to be, or we are slaves. In one way or another, we are slaves. And it's your choice what kind of slave you'd like to be. Romans chapter 6, verse 20, Paul said, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have to worry about righteousness. Loving each other. Seeking the fruit of the Spirit. Opening up God's Word. Showing up and worshiping God. Caring. But you didn't have to worry about that. Because man, you weren't a slave of righteousness. You were a slave of sin. So you could do whatever you wanted. You were free from righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Man, I'll tell you what, two kinds of slavery. I can be a slave of sin unto death or I can be a slave of righteousness, a slave of the Lord for eternal life. There are those who say foolishly, stupidly, that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Nobody's reigning in hell. Nobody. Not even Satan himself. You've seen all the little jokes of Satan in those comic strips or or in jokes where he's in hell and he's telling people what to do and he's in charge, he's the boss. No, he's not. Not according to Scripture. When Satan is cast into hell, like every other being in hell, all he's going to do is weep and gnash his teeth. That's it. There There is no leading, no power, no boss in hell. So I would rather serve in heaven. What a great place to serve. So the revelation was given to Jesus, which God gave to him, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Number three, the revelation of Jesus Christ was given in a taxi. The word soon bothers a lot of people here. It's the Greek phrase in taxi. E-N, one word, second word, T-A-X. E-I, if you want to kind of make an alliteration there. But the word in taxi is a fascinating word and needs to be understood. Now, to understand this, let me give you a, a kind of a word picture. I was on the island of Roatan, which is a little Caribbean island off the, the northern coast of Honduras. I went down there, had taken some students down for a mission trip, and we were relaxing, or we headed over to Roatan to relax for a couple of days before heading back to the States. We got off the airplane, we got into the terminal, terminal, it wasn't even as big as this barn, and I, I called up the hotel where we had reservations to see if they would send a car to come get us or let us know how to get there or whatever we needed to do. They did not have my reservation. Now, I had a faxed copy in my hand of the reservation for myself, my five adult leaders, and my 15 high school kids, who were all standing there looking helplessly at me like, oh no, we're going to be stranded. And and so I'm calling and I'm talking, and they say, well, we just don't have a reservation, and I'm sorry, but we are full. Great, so we're on this third world island with nowhere to stay, and this guy walks up to me. Some of you have heard me share this before. This guy who was about seven and a half feet tall, (laughs) as black as the night, and with dreadlocks, most of his seven feet. (laughs) And he came up to me and he goes, Hey, man, you need a place to stay, man. I'm like, no thanks. (laughs) We thought we'd just camp out here. (laughs) We'll stay put. Thank you very much. He goes, no, no, I'll take you to a great place, man. We'll take it. Oh, he says, American-owned. They just bought the place. You'll love it, man. We'll take you to the taxi. We'll get you there. And if you don't like it, we'll bring you back here. And I'm a youth pastor. I don't know any better. So I say, okay. <laughs> Load them up, kids. And we loaded into these taxis that were circa 1970s Datsun station wagons <laughs> that were lower to the ground than the ground itself. The tires had no tread whatsoever, completely bald. There were no shocks. We got in and, and they loaded us down, five or six people in like a four-person seat, loaded all of our gear on there on the tops and in the back, and we took off. And we were flying, and I was just thinking, Lord, this is it. I'm dead. I didn't even believe in the rapture at that point. I figured I was just going down. And these kids are going with me. Well, at least I'll die with them so I don't have to face their parents. All this stuff is running through my mind. And what was amazing is we were going faster and faster and faster. And these roads were getting more and more narrow. And they were two-way roads, single lane. 
So every now and then we'd go flying off the side of the road into the dirt. Dirt would come up and I'd see why because another car would go boom. You know? And it just seemed like the longer we were in these taxis, the faster we went. And that's what in taxi means. It means to speed up. It means occurring with increasing or sudden rapidity. When we read the word soon, we take and we say, oh, the things which must soon take place. That was 2,000 years ago, and it didn't soon take place. But someone reading this in the Greek would understand, these are the things that are going to take place with increasing rapidity in taxi. Taxi in the Greek is where we get our word tach for tachometer. What does a tachometer do in a car? It checks the RPMs. We see how much we are revving up. And so this phrase, this word in taxi, indicates that when something gets going, it will speed up with increasing rapidity. Things will soon take place. They will happen like a tachometer. First gear starts out slowly. Second gear revs a little faster. Third gear, fourth gear. And so it is with God's eternal plan. So it is with his revelational plan for us. Things will increase. Will speed up will move faster. When John received the revelation, I put it to you that he was in first gear. The church had just been going 60 years or so. Not a lot had happened so much. There had been a lot of persecution. The church was growing rapidly itself. But it was still early in the stages, first, second gear. And over church history, things have been speeding up. We've been shifting for 2,000 years, and I believe we're in overdrive right now. Gail emailed me this, this week and asked the question, when, when do you think the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled? And Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When is that? Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. And I'll just read this to you. Daniel's writing, he says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, what does all that mean? We'll have to study Daniel, I'm not going to tell you right now. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, which, by the way, is a phrase used quite a bit in Revelation and is very specific. You'll see what that means as we get to it. For a time, times, and half a time, but he says the following, Daniel 12, verse 7, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As soon as they, have, they finish shattering the power of the holy people, we're speaking of Israel, all these things, all these events will be completed. In light of the recent events in Gaza and the increasing pressure on, by the world on Israel to give up land, this shattering of the holy people may not be far off. It's interesting, Ariel Sharon was the one who you know, kind of spearheaded this whole pulling Israel out of Gaza completely emptying them out of the Gaza Strip. Now it is completely Palestinian run, and by the way, completely overrun by Hamas. It is, it is outrageously out of control right now. The Palestinian Authority has no authority in Gaza right now. Hamas has been shooting dozens of Qassam rockets constantly into Israel. Israel is now, along the border of Gaza, is now lining up artillery, and it's getting heated up, and I'm going there in January. Woo-hoo. Should be fun. 
But for a week there, Ariel Sharon was, was the darling of the world. Showing up at the United Nations, giving speeches, everyone going, Oh, hey, isn't this wonderful? Look, he pulled out. Now we have a chance for peace. And almost as quick as that, as that affection began, it is gone and the world is putting pressure back on Israel to give up more land. Okay, you gave up Gaza. You've got to get out of the West Bank now. And you need to get out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem needs to be divided. That can't belong under the sovereign control of Israel anymore. Well, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Again, you need to understand something about Israel. As much as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and hope that the Jewish people will have protection from God, they have to go through a shattering. A shattering. It's called the tribulation. And we'll read about that in chapters 6 through 19. Well... Remember, going back to in-taxian, or right in the taxi, and things occurring with increased or sudden rapidity, remember that God's chronology, God's chronology is not like ours. It's not the same as ours. The Bible's clear. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I like this one. A teenager was talking to God. I said, Lord, is it true that to you a thousand years is like one day? And the Lord said, yes, my son. And the teenager said, well, Lord, then would it also be true that to you a thousand dollars is like a penny? And he said, yes, my son. And the kid said, well, Lord, then could I just have a penny? And the Lord said, yeah, give me a minute. <laughs> time, time is revving up. And to God, 2,000 years, two millennia, is nothing more than putting the pedal to the metal. It is speeding up, revving up in taxi. The revelation was given in a taxi. It was given to happen soon in our language, a poor use of words in our language, but it was given to happen with increasing rapidity. Number four in our notes, the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to signify. To signify. For reading on, it says this is to uh, given to his bond service the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John. Now that word communicated... Communicated is semaino in the Greek. Semaino literally means signified or by use of symbols. It was given to John. We're written here. And he says he sent it and symbolized it or signified it by his angel to his bondservant John. Now, you might say, well, hang on a second. I thought you said the book of Revelation is best studied in its literal sense. And I did say that. But that this book is best to understand it. Just read it and take it at face value as much as you possibly can. Just take it at face value. That's the best way to read it. So what's this about suddenly the revelation was given in terms of signs and symbols and, and to be signified? Jesus gave the revelation using symbols in many times of literal things. Word pictures. Word pictures. And the word pictures, my friends, are understandable. Why did he do it? Three reasons. Number one, to provide protection. To provide protection. 
Andrew and Becky Campbell are down in Costa Rica, as many of you know, and I would encourage you to go to their website. Um, and I, it's going to be listed, if you, if you haven't seen it, it's going to be listed in the program starting in, I think, the first Sunday of October. So you can go to their website, and Andrew is just writing all their experiences, and there are pictures on there. And it's, it's really cool. You can kind of track what's happening for them while they're down there. But something Andrew told me just after they first got down there was... Phil's Rancho, where they're staying, is surrounded, as all the houses are in that neighborhood, by fences that are barbed wire with gates. He said he has four or five locks on the front gate that you have to unlock and relock every single one of them every time you leave the house or come back in. That's just the state of things down there. In the same way, there are some padlocks on the book of Revelation to provide protection at the time John received this revelation, the heat against the church in Rome was intense. Throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were under incredible and tremendous persecution, as you'll see very clearly in coming studies. But a Roman trying to read the book of Revelation would be very similar to, uh, say, a non-Christian person today trying to read it. Huh? What? I don't get that at all. Even oftentimes, Christian people are, are a little confused by things until it starts to all come together but there's a simple key, gang, to unlocking those locks on the gate, to getting into the book and seeing and understanding it clearly and plainly, even for all of the word pictures. You want to know what the simple key is? It's the scriptures. It's the Bible itself. It's specifically the Old Testament scriptures. There are 518 illustrations and allusions in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. 518. Drawing the reader back. Now, a Jewish Christian, at the time of John, guess what they didn't have when they studied the Scriptures? They didn't have, for the most part, the Bible as we have it today. They didn't have the New Testament. Some of the letters of Paul were circulating. The Gospels, most of them had been written, well, all of them had been written by then and were beginning to circulate. But people didn't go down to the local Christian bookstore, pick up a Bible, and take it with them to church. Mostly, what the Christians in the first century had to study was the Old Testament. And so they would search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies to see Jesus, much like we're doing on Sunday mornings now. And Wednesday nights, as we go through Leviticus, we see Jesus all over the place. That is wisdom gang to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation. The believers who received the Revelation should have and would have been familiar with the Old Testament, and I believe one of the reasons why people today in the church are so confused about the book of Revelation is because they haven't studied the Old Testament. They just haven't been in the book. But the more time you're in the book, the more the book makes sense. Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses symbolism, word pictures, in the book of Revelation to provide protection for the church because only the believers would understand what was really going on there. He also did it, I believe, to ensure information. Word pictures, to ensure information. Language changes with time, doesn't it? As cultures change and shift, language, even as we study the Bible, so often I have to say now, this word in the Greek means this, or this word in the Hebrew is actually this. Just because our language has trouble translating. Word pictures don't. Stories don't have trouble translating. They can translate beyond, across culture. It's interesting, even the King James Bible, 
The language is a bit Elizabethan. It's a difficult read for many people today, but the word pictures are just as powerful, just as understandable as with any of the more simpler versions that are out there. The signs in the Bible, and especially in Revelation, are cross-cultural, cross-generational, cross-chronological. Why? Because Isaiah 40, verse 8 tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so Jesus communicates many of these things in word pictures so that 2,000 years later, though times had changed and language had changed, information would still be understood. It would still come across as crystal as it was given in the first century. To provide protection, to ensure information, it was also given in symbols to excite emotion. To excite emotion. Wait a minute. You're saying the Bible should be an emotional experience? I thought it should be a studious experience. I want to get all emotional with the Bible. We'll get really confused. No, it should be emotional. Have you ever just been in Bible study and started to tear up? If you haven't, then I, <laughs> I'm not sure you've really been in Bible study. Because this is an emotional book. It's an incredibly emotional book. But it's also, think about it this way. It's one thing to say, world political leader. It's another thing to say, the beast. That's a little more emotional, isn't it? It draws a picture for us. It's one thing to say commercial system. Another thing to say Babylon, the mother of whores. Well, there's a picture for you. It's one thing to say one world religion. It's another to say a woman rides the beast. Another thing to say Christians. Better to say the bride of Christ. And those who have been Christians for any length of time, don't you love being called the bride? Even me, along with Aaron, and I'm not even a male cheerleader, to be called a bride. Just the hammer's coming down tonight. Or, or... We'll have a little demonstration later. Or listen to this one. Better to hear the lamb that was slain. Or you can say the crucified Christ, but when you hear the lamb that was slain, the picture, it's emotional. It, it stirs the heart. What do you get emotional about? What are you really passionate about in your life? I mean, gentlemen, is it Monday Night Football? Man, it's that time of year again. I can't wait. Is it a relationship that you're in? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And someone might say, well, okay, but Rick, is it wise to get emotional and all excited like this? Hey, if you're excited about anything, it should be about the Lord's return. That's worth getting emotional about. That's worth tearing up about. That's worth jumping up and shouting about. That's what worth tearing for. <laughs> That's the last one. I'll let you off the hook. That's it. There's enough. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his bond service, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. To his bond servant, John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Number five, the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to John. Was given to John. Now we're going to look more closely at John next week, but for now, who, who was John? One thing to know about John that is a standout right at the beginning of this book, John was the witness. John was the witness. Why was it that Jesus chose John to give the revelation to? 
Why was it that John, of all the, the apostles, was the one to outlive them all? He was the old man. He was the one alive in the late 90s. He was the one who was still around. All the others had, in various ways, been martyred, not John. Oh, they tried to take him out. But he was still alive. Why was he the one to receive the revelation? Because John, of all the apostles, is the one to wear his heart on his sleeve. John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, as I prayed earlier, was the one who was leaning up against Jesus, loved him so much, their relationship was so close. At the Last Supper, he was right there. Peter down at the end of the table. Hey, John, ask Jesus, who's going to betray him? John was the one who was close. And John was the witness. Flip in your Bibles real quickly to John chapter 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth of the Gospels. It was the latest of the Gospels to be written. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their Gospels somewhat early after Jesus ascended back into heaven, John would wait. John would wait and ponder and consider things for years. But John chapter 19, John 19, verse 33. John 19, verse 33. John writes, Coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He's the only of the, of the gospel writers who mentions that. And he who has seen, listen to this, he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that also you may believe. Skip over to John chapter 21 verse 24. In John 21, 24, he continues, he, he writes saying the following, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. And wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. Which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John, who testified of these things. The witness. John was the witness. Get now over to 1 John. Toward the end of the New Testament. 1 John. On page 1242. 1 <laughs> John, in chapter 5. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 9. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. John was the witness. But gang, John was just doing what a witness does. I believe that Jesus called on John and gave him the revelation because he knew John would testify. He knew John would be the witness. He knew John was the one who was going to open his mouth, share it, get it passed around, make sure people heard the revelation. Amazing. 
John just is simply testifying to the things which he has seen, and that's what a witness does. And we talk about witnessing in Christianity today. I'm going to go out and go witnessing. I'm going to witness to people. Well, how do I do that? You testify to the things which you have seen. You testify to what Jesus has done in your life. Oh, my story is so simple, so plain, so boring. No, it's not. It's the story of you in a love relationship with God. Share the story. You don't have to know a lot of scripture. You don't have to be knocking on people's doors and going, Hey, here's your invitation to come to the Bridge Christian Fellowship this Sunday. No, just tell your story. Let the emotion, the excitement, the wonder of what God has done in you, let that be what you tell people. And like John, you will be a witness. Now, number six, I guess. Are we on number six? Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ was given also then, flipping back to Revelation chapter one, was given to the church. To the church. Verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now I mentioned this, we'll see this very clearly coming up soon. The revelation of Jesus has both a specific zip code, but it's also a sweeping panoramic vision. The zip code. The zip code was literally, this book was written to be given to seven churches. These seven historically accurate, historically true churches in Asia. Along a Roman postal route, you could track it and you could see this is where the, the postal route would go. A highway that ran between these seven different cities, seven towns. And the letters were given directly to each one of those seven churches. Specific as a zip code. God says, I want to make sure these churches get this letter. Does that mean it's not for anyone else? Was it just for Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea? Sardis, was it just for those churches or could there be more to it? Well, it's not just a zip code. It's also a panorama of seven epochs in church history. And as you begin to get into chapters 2 and 3, as we enter into that, hopefully soon, you're going to see this. It is stunning. It's dramatic. That it's not just these seven specific churches. It's not just the fact that, well, God chose the number seven, that number of completion, because it completes the picture but each one of these churches very definitely represent different epochs of time over the last 2,000 years. And when you look at it, you will not miss it. It's amazing. The revelation was given to the church. By the way, just a little side note, there's a reason why I take a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. Pre-tribulational, what's that? It means that the church will be taken out before the tribulation happens. Before God begins to pour out his wrath on earth, I'm absolutely convinced by a literal reading of the scripture, the church is gone. We won't be here. We will not experience that. And there are several reasons for that. I'm not going to get into them all tonight. But let me just point out one that's very interesting to me. It's the remarkable reference to the church in chapters 2 and 3. Fifteen times in those two chapters, John uses the word, the church. He refers to the church. Jesus says, all the churches, listen up, pay attention to the angel of this church or that church or the other church. Fifteen times the churches are talked about in chapters 2 and 3. From chapter 6, where the tribulation begins, all the way to the end of chapter 19, the church is not mentioned once. It's absent. The remarkable absence of the church in chapters 6 through 19. Chapters 2 and 3, it's all about the church. Chapter 6 through 19, where's the church? 
Certainly not on earth. Certainly not being talked about. Not a single time. And you'd think if the church was in the tribulation, that John would mention it. As much as he did mentioning the church during the first couple of three chapters. Okay, well, if the church is mentioned all over the place in chapters 2 and 3, and then chapters 6 through 19, the church is not mentioned at all, what about chapters 4 and 5, those two chapters in the middle? Oh, this is great. The church is in heaven. The church is very clearly in heaven, spoken of in those two chapters. It's amazing. So if the church is here on earth in chapters 2 and 3, and in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and then chapters 6 through 19 is the tribulation, well, the church is in heaven during the time of the tribulation. Well, that's kind of faulty reasoning, Rick. I don't know. I think the number 6 always comes after the number 5. It's always kind of a chronological thing. After chapters 2 and 3, normally come chapters 4 and 5. And after chapters 4 and 5, normally comes chapter 6. And so if you follow these things along chronologically, literally, simply, uh, Rick, you're a simpleton. I am. And I embrace it. Thank you very much. Now, I want you to see something. One, the first, actually, of two powerful descriptions as John the Witness begins to write the things which he has seen. That is the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ.